Welcome to Kraken Cove, the podcast that shines a beacon onto the bazaar. I'm your host for today, I'm Matt. Um, there's no Benny today, unfortunately. Uh, him and Robo Pete have had to go see a, a man about a dog on the mainland. Um, so it's just me, manning the lighthouse all on my own. I have to admit, it's a little bit spooky here today, it's a little bit spooky. It doesn't help the fact it's nearly October, which is the spookiest month of them all. So first of all, I'd just like to ask if any of you have a spooky story to share. What we plan to do is, we're going to have a bit of a spooky tales when Ben gets back. The episode in October, we're going to have four spooky episodes. And the first one's going to be spooky true stories that me and Benny have experienced. But after that, later in the month, we'd like to get your stories and read those out. So, if you've got any stories, reach out to Kraken Cove on the email, which is krakencovepodcast at gmail.com and krakencovepodcast is all one word. Or contact us on Twitter, at Kraken Cove or on Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod. Get in touch and uh, let us know your stories. You can either record them yourself and we'll play it or write it down and we'll read it out. But for now, because it's quite spooky, I'm going to have to stay up and keep an eye out because all sorts of things go off at Kraken Cove in the dark. But even though Ben's not here, that's not going to stop me doing just a little bit of casting. And what we're going to look at today is the legend of the Hand of Glory. Open lock to the dead man's knock, fly bolt and bar and band. Nor move nor swerve, joint muscle or nerve at the spell of the dead man's hand. Sleep all who sleep, wake all who wake, but be as the dead for the dead man's sake. Now lock nor bolt nor bar avails, nor stout oak panel thick studded with nails. Heavy and harsh the hinges creak, Though they had been oiled in the course of the week, the door opens wide, as wide may be, and there they stand, that murderous band, lit by the light of the glorious hand, by one, by two, by three. These lines are from the nurse's story, The Hand of Glory by Thomas Inglesby, who collected and wrote myths and legends and poetry 
during the early part of the 19th century. Thomas Inglesby was in fact the pen name of an English clergyman, Richard Harris Barham, a prolific author who probably wrote under a pseudonym to maintain his respectability as a man of the cloth. But for those of you who don't know what Hand of Glory is, or was, let's take a look at what our old friend Wikipedia has to say. It describes a hand of glory as being the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man, often specified as being the left hand, the Latin of which translates as sinister. Or if a person was hanged for murder, the hand that did the deed. Old European beliefs attribute great powers to a hand of glory, combined with a candle made from the fat from the corpse of the same malefactor who died on the gallows. The candles so made, lighted and placed as if in a candlestick in the hand of glory, would have rendered motionless all persons to whom it was presented. The process for preparing the hand and the candle are described in 18th century documents with certain steps disputed due to difficulty in properly translating phrases from that era. The concept inspired short stories and poems in the 19th century. But the question is, how might you properly prepare your own hand of glory? Well, the accounts do vary, as we mentioned earlier, but the website Folklore Thursday relates probably the closest credible recipe for creating your own hand of glory, but I can't imagine it'll be a Mary Berry's next cookbook. Although, by the look of her, I might well be wrong. They write, A French grimoire from 1782 gives three stipulations for the hand. Firstly, the aim of using the hand was to stupefy and render immobile to those to whom it is presented. Secondly, it must assuredly be the hand of a hanged man. Finally, there is a particular method of preparation. It is either the right or left hand, cut off while still strung up along the highway, then wrapped in a shroud, pressed well to stay the remaining blood, and pickled in an earthen vessel containing zimat, saltpetre, salt and pepper for 15 days, then dried in the sun. If you're unfortunate enough to live in colder climes, it is deemed acceptable to dry the hand in the oven instead, as long as fennel and verbena are added. The hand is then used to hold a candle made from the hanged man's own fat, which, when brandished, makes all in the vicinity remain in deepest sleep. The only protection against this grotesque charm is to make an ointment of the gall of a black cat, along with the chicken fat and the blood of an owl. The mixture should be rubbed around the door and any other places that a thief might enter the house. There are accounts of hands of glory being used throughout Europe from as far back as the 1500s, perhaps even earlier but they all seem to have a similar theme. A beggar or a poor traveller stops at a well-to-do home and begs for shelter from a storm. The request is granted, but while warming themselves, 
they would get up to some sort of mischief. Hand of glory would be lit, and thievery would transpire. These stories more often than not ended badly for the thief, with some brave servant or other foiling the plot, and it does seem to be a warning to the wealthy not to be too hasty in assisting those less fortunate, as they may harbour nefarious intentions. Not a particularly pleasant or generous parable, to be sure, and one that sadly seems to last through to the present day. But Folklore Thursday continues. The most gruesome tale about severed hands are from stories from Germany, calling them thieves' lights. In Ashleman's wonderful resource on Hands of Glory, we find his translated versions of these original stories, one from Jacob Grimm himself. Some of the accounts are harsh to tell indeed. They are the fingers of unborn innocent little children. For these purposes, the fingers of already born and baptised children cannot be used. What sort of unborn little children are they? And how does one obtain the lights? When a female thief or murderer hangs or drowns herself, or is hanged or beheaded, and she is carrying a child inside her body, then you must go forth at midnight on the devil's roads, not on God's roads, with incantations and magic, not with prayer and blessings, and you must take an axe or a knife that has been used by an executioner, and with it you must open the poor sinner's belly, take out the child, cut off its fingers, and take them with you. This must be done at midnight, without a sound, and then they will never burn up. Other stories tell that the toes of unborn children were also used, while some mention how pregnant women were often sold to thieves at high costs for just such a purpose. In later editions of some of these tales, Ashleman notes, the detail that the children were unborn is replaced with unbaptized, and one has to wonder if such folklore was just too shocking, hence deemed indecent. It certainly doesn't pay to wonder whether this practice ever took place. But I found an account here by the writer Herbert Leslie G, and this is a pretty typical one, but the good thing about it is it its origins are close to the cove. It's in Yorkshire. So let's have a little story from Herbert Leslie G. And his story's called The Hand of Glory. High on Stainmore, a wild region between Bowes in Yorkshire and Bruff in Westmoreland, is Rare Cross, an ancient boundary stone still defying the weather after many centuries. Nearby is a long narrow building with stables below and an upper portion reached by stone steps leading to a massive oak door on heavy iron hinges with its thick walls, barred windows and roof of stone slabs stained by years of sun and frost and rain. The inn, Spittle House, once well known to all who travelled that way by stagecoach is a kind of fortified house, grim outside, but warm and comfortable within. 
Now in 1797, the landlord of Spittle House was George Alderson, and one October evening, he and his son sat by the roaring fire in the living room, thankful indeed that they had returned from Brough Fair before the wind and rain had overtaken them. They had done good business, coming home with pockets heavier than when they had set out. George Alderson's wife and their maid of all work, Bella, sometimes joined in the conversation. Sturdy George, with his kindly face, stretched his long limbs before the huge log fire, and Mrs. Alderson and Bella, who were spinning flax, glanced at each other every now and then when a sudden gust of wind shook the casements, stirring the red curtains. "'It's been a good day, lad,' said George Alderson to his son. "'I'm glad to have the money safely in bedroom cupboard. "'There's folks out there would like a bit of it, I'm thinking.' His son laughed. "'I reckon we have to work for it,' said he, to which his father nodded agreement. Another gust of wind howled over the inn, bringing with it a shower of rain which struck the window like gunshot. At the same moment, though the hour was late and the night exceptionally stormy, there came a feeble knock at the door. "'Open door, lass,' said George Alderson, addressing Bella. "'I wouldn't keep a dog out in weather like this.' "'He best slackened chain, lass,' cautioned his wife, wondering what benighted traveller could disturb them so late. Obediently, Bella went to the door and loosened the heavy chain. She need not, however, have been apprehensive, it seemed, for all she saw against the blackness of the night was a bent old woman in a long black cloak and hood. Bella invited her in, supporting her to a chair by the fire. The woman refused to remove her wet cloak and hood, begging only, in a hoarse whisper, to be allowed to rest a while. She would neither go to bed nor eat, she said, for she must be off again as soon as the storm abated. An hour or two by a warm fireside would be a godsend, she added. George Alderson did what he could to make the woman comfortable, and after supper he piled more wood on the fire, and then he went up to bed, his wife and son having already retired. So Bella was left alone with the stranger. It was her custom to tidy up the kitchen before going up to bed, and while she did so that wild October night, she made several attempts to chat with the old woman, receiving only brief answers, however. Once or twice the girl thought the stranger's voice rather deep for a woman, and presently, when the wayfarer drew a little closer to the fire and put her feet on the hearth, Bella noticed with alarm that below the skirts were the toes of two heavy riding boots. In a flash she realised that the visitor was a man disguised as a woman, and she at once decided to stay in the living room instead of going to bed. Explaining that she usually slept on the couch, she removed her shoes, lay down, drew a rug over her, and after a quarter of an hour or so, pretended to be asleep, though all the time she was keeping careful watch on the stranger. Thinking Bella's deep breathing indicated that the girl was asleep, the figure in the chair quietly rose and threw back the hood and cloak. The old woman giving place to an evil-looking man who approached the frightened girl 
and bent over her for a minute or more. Satisfied that she was sound asleep, he took from the folds of his cloak a dried and withered human hand, brown and horrible to behold. Placing this on the table, he lit a candle at the fire and put it between the stiff fingers. All this was seen by Bella, who would certainly have screamed had she not been too frightened to do so. Yet for all her fears, she was courageous enough to lie still. Well did she know what was being done. The stranger was using the dead hand to cast a spell upon all in the house. Once the candle flame was burning steadily, the robber leaned over it and muttered in a low voice, Let those who rest more deeply sleep, let those who awake their vigil keep. O hand of glory, shed thy light, direct us to our spoil this night. After a pause, the stranger stepped back from the table, drew aside the red curtain at the window, and called more loudly, Flash out thy flame, O skeleton hand, and guide the feet of our trusty band. Immediately the candle flame shot up, giving a brilliant and livid light. At the same moment the robber went to the door, unbarred it, drew back the bolts, unfastened the chain and flung it open, letting in a cold blast of night air as he did so. It was well for Bella that she continued to lie motionless on her couch, for the robber stepped back to look carefully at her, and had she even so much as blinked her eyes, he would have certainly shot her dead. Turning to the door again, he gave a shrill whistle, but the next moment he was sent spinning down the steps, for Bella, springing up, had given him a mighty push. Before the robber could regain the steps, the heavy door was slammed in his face, the chain fastened, the bar in position, the lock turned. Up the stairs ran Bella, but though she called loudly and actually shook her master and mistress, and then attempted to rouse young Alderson, her efforts were in vain. The spell of the Hand of Glory was upon them, and no human voice or touch could break it. In response to their leader's whistle, the rest of the gang had now reached the inn and were hammering at the door. Bella paused, trying to gather her scattered wits. Hurrying to the living room, she picked up a bowl of milk and dashed it over the lighted candle and human hand. The spell was broken at once, and the noise outside now instantly roused George Alderson and his son, who lost no time in laying hold of their firearms. Opening one of the upper windows, the landlord told the gang to be off, and when they refused to go, his son fired a blunderbuss in their direction. There was a groan in the darkness, and beneath the howling of the wind and the beating of the rain, the landlord could hear excited and angry conversation. Presently a voice called, Give us a hand of glory, and we will not harm you. But the only answer was the landlord's son firing again. So there we have it, 
a depraved and odious practice, the use of dead man's hands, and indeed those of children, for robbery and other crimes, and it seems well documented from at least the 16th century. Many people are certainly unsurprised that many of the confessions about the use of these vile things came from men under torture, and might question the accuracy in light of this. In fact, it's a practice many would deem to come from the realm of imagination, particularly as we all wonder where we would find evidence of these hands of glory today. But you might be unsettled to find that there is now just one remaining example, still languishing idly in its wooden box in Whitby Museum, waiting for someone to reach out with a flame. This one remaining example was discovered in the early 20th century, hidden in the wall of a thatched cottage in Castleton by a stonemason and local historian, Joseph Ford. He immediately identified it from the popular stories of such objects as a hand of glory. It was given to Whitby Museum in 1935 and is the only alleged hand known to survive. But if you live in an old cottage or farmhouse, just imagine what might lie in those dusty spaces behind plaster and lat. A witch bottle, a dead cat perhaps, or maybe, just maybe, a hand of glory. Well it's time for me to tend the light now. Keep an eye out for Benny and Robo Pete coming across those waves at some point. But remember, do get in touch, pass on your spooky stories, and perhaps we'll be able to get to read them out. So, from me now at Kraken Cove, goodbye. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at crackandcoldpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at crackandcold, or Instagram at crackandcoldpod. Ha ha!